for a festival that gets a bad reputation for being a bit of an influencer hotbed, the things that people still talk about now are not what Paris Hilton was doing backstage, but these daring evolutions of what live music could look like today. Hey streamers and dreamers, my name is Kika Loma and you are listening to The Week by Telecom Electronic Beats. It's Thursday, April 20th, and this is your weekly update on music, culture and what's next. This week, we take a look at one of the biggest phenomenons in 21st century pop culture, Coachella. Or to be precise, the Coachella Valley Music and Arts Festival. Coachella started in 1999 as a rather low-level desert town event, and since then, it has grown into a cultural flashpoint. The biggest names in music perform to 250,000 attendees across six days and six stages, all of them now streamed live on YouTube to a global audience. And if you've looked at your phone at some point over the past weekend, you know that Coachella is also the ultimate backdrop to social media content for every influencer and Hollywood celebrity. What happens in the desert clearly does not stay in the desert at all. So how did Coachella become Coachella? Let's find out. Coachella was first announced in 1999 with a lineup boasting alternative music royalty such as Beck, Rage Against the Machine and the Chemical Brothers. It might sound strange to say from today's perspective, but the late 90s were a far cry from today's music festival explosion in the US and everywhere else in the world. There simply weren't that many festivals. In fact, Coachella was one of the first US music events to be inspired by what was happening in select places in Europe, such as Glastonbury. The approach to booking was simple, artistry over commercial success. That didn't yield financial success from the get-go, but it helped the festival grow continuously, both in size and cultural significance. By 2004, Rolling Stone called Coachella America's best music festival. It became so popular that they added a second weekend in 2012, and both weekends usually sell out in a matter of seconds. Coachella has lived up to the hype time and time again. Over the years, there were epic and influential performances from the likes of Beyonce, Prince or the Tupac Hologram. And one might argue that we also witnessed the birth of what is now commonly referred to as EDM. Whether you like it or not, without Daft Punk and their Coachella Pyramid, electronic music probably wouldn't be the same today. Well, Daft Punk did not perform this year, even though some trolls managed to plant the rumour on social media. Instead, we got Frank Ocean's divisive comeback after six years off stage and Rosalia bringing out her boyfriend for two songs during her set. Across the weekend, we saw music from all around the world take centre stage, with Blackpink and Bad Bunny as headliners. Weekend 2 is just around the corner, so we caught up with music journalist Gabrielle Satan for a chat about the past, present and future of Coachella. Gabrielle is currently working on a book about Daft Punk and the impact of their iconic performance in the desert. So trust me, he's followed Coachella for a while. Hey Gabrielle, thanks for joining us. Pretty much everyone with an interest in pop culture knows Coachella. It's normal for the biggest artists to make huge announcements or surprise performances at the festival. So how did Coachella become such a big thing? I think the value of what Coachella stands for has adapted over time, which makes its arc kind of fascinating. Uh, Even before its current iteration as a hotbed for pop, rap, fashion, influencers, trend casting. It was most well known uh, in the music sphere for having the pulling power to get reunions out of mostly alternative bands. Uh, Rage Against the Machine, The Pixies, My Bloody Valentine, Porter's Head, Bauhaus, 
some of these acts were already thinking about coming back and they just needed a nudge to get there. And Coachella typically provided that nudge as well as obviously a very handsome fee. It means that Coachella embedded itself fully within the pop cultural landscape. Uh, it kind of became a word synonymous with excitement and with something to go and be and do and be seen at. And that's a position it has yet to relinquish. You seem like someone who's done their research. So in your opinion, what would you consider some of the most iconic moments in the festival's history? In terms of pivotal moments, uh, you really can't look past Daft Punk in 2006. They debuted their Pyramid set up in the Sahara tent, which then bloomed into a two-year tour we now know as Alive 2006-2007. They hadn't performed live in nine years, and there was a lot of intrigue about what was going to happen. And they simply blew the competition out of the water with a show that sequenced live graphics to an incredibly detailed mega mix and tied it all together with a rock and roll flair. It was a quantum leap for dance music's potential and popularity in the live arena. It's the real reason why Coachella became known for priority billings for what we now know as EDM artists uh, and DJs in the year that followed. In 2012, Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg also resurrected Tupac, which was uh, another significant level up because the festival added a second weekend. That was really so that people who read about what happened in the desert had the opportunity to go see it the following weekend if they wanted to, which showed that Coachella was leaning into the global attention that it was building with these big, ritzy stage shows. And it meant that when someone like Beyonce dazzled in 2018, there was now double the supply to meet demand that there had been before. Uh, so maybe, you know, you could say that it's encouraging that for a festival that gets a bad reputation for being a bit of an influencer hotbed, um, the things that people still talk about now are not what Paris Hilton was doing backstage, but these daring evolutions of what live music could look like that still reverberate today. Give us a little bit more insight into the evolution of electronic music at Coachella. How does the genre hold up in comparison to some of the other genres that we might see on the roster of artists featured in the festival's lineup? A key sub-narrative of the book that I'm writing, After Daft, uh, is about the ebb and flow of dance and electronic music at American festivals like Coachella, Ultra, Movement, EDC, uh, and so on. Thinking strictly Coachella, even though Daft Punk moved the needle in 2006, they actually already had quite a strong lean on credible, let's say, electronic music right from the get-go. In 1999, the first Coachella had the Chemical Brothers, Underworld, The Art of Noise, The Belleville 3, Cornelius, DJ Rap, absolutely shed loads of drum and bass. And they continued in that vein throughout the 2000s. But once the Sahara tent became synonymous with Electro House in the style of justice, and then DJs like David Guetta and Steve Aoki took over, the rest of the market really followed. Uh, and that's what helped EDM become a multi-billion dollar industry in the States. Good or bad, in the early 2010s, those were the market conditions. And that's what Coachella was really responding to. However, when I went to Coachella last year in 2022, there had been a shift again. The Sahara tent is now more of a hotbed for rap music. And because EDM has cooled off substantially in its appeal to Gen Z, you had artists like Jamie XX, Fred Again, Jada G and Disclosure playing big slots instead of Diplo and DJ Snake. It shows that 
even what Calvin Harris played this year, I feel like Coachella's electronic music offering is maybe going back to a more broad and, dare I say, nuanced place without the need to go for DJs strictly who could warm up the Super Bowl. And I think next year we'll continue to see that. I personally reckon Fred again will be headlining Coachella, if not 2024, then at least 2025. And for an artist, contentious as he is, who derives his sound from Brian Eno and Burial, that shows that things are changing. So in your opinion, what were the first weekend's absolute highlights? Is there anything you're looking forward to for the second weekend? Overmono, Too Many DJs and Rosalia were all fantastic. I really enjoyed all of them. But there's really only two artists who truly dominated the intrigue. Uh, it might just have been the first Coachella where being at home provided as much entertainment as actually being out in the desert. And that was because of Jaipur and Frank Ocean. For Jaipur, it was his first ever show, which takes insane bravery to debut at Coachella. Uh, and though he started off quite nervous at the start, um, he was rocking it by the end. He was in the zone. Uh, and I think it's to his credit, now he's going to begin doing a full, I guess, global tour. And uh, he kind of nailed the brief and surely will have embellished his credit to step out into the light. As for Frank Ocean... <laughs> Frank really dominated the conversation back at home for reasons good and bad. He declined to be streamed, which caused all his fans to kind of erupt with indignity, then showed up an hour late and turned in a cryptic performance that people are still trying to work out. Apparently, he changed the whole setup at the 11th hour. Perhaps he was injured. It's hard to really tell. And watching Frank, there were moments like when he was singing White Ferrari, where it sounded celestial. And the visuals were cinema quality, but there were also gaps, long pauses, an interlude DJ set by Crystal Mess that wasn't exactly understood by his fans. And then he hit curfew and had to end. Um, so all eyes on weekend two for whether he even shows up, whether Coachella drops him from the bill, or whether he can get it back and kind of turn in the performance from Frank Ocean that everyone was expecting. And now, let's dive into the other headlines from this week. Colour Studios pairs up with Apple Music. Colour Studios, you know the ones that play some of the greatest artists in the world in front of those monochromatic walls? Now, they've paired up with Apple Music for a new radio show. We are here to celebrate everything colours. I am currently coming at you from New York City, and I'll also be calling up Elmi, who's holding it down for us in London. So this is R&B artist Mahalia. She's hosting the very first episode of this brand new radio show. It's called Colours 360 FM and various artists who've previously performed on Colours, like Mahalia, will be sharing their music and music that inspired them, as well as talking to other artists about their performances, their creative process and their art in general. Walking in and seeing, oh, damn, that's that's it. That's like a blue background. Like That's how they set it up. That's cool. Okay. Yeah. And then like getting up on the thing and like there's the mic hanging down. You're like, so they do hang up a mic. Because you know, when you're online, they're like, oh, they don't actually have the mic. You know, it's actually know. like green screen yeah. or whatever. Amazing. Colours 360 FM will air monthly on Wednesdays on Apple Music One. And you can actually listen to it for free if you're listening live. Check the show notes for details. Freaknik documentary planned. Don't be surprised if mums and dads are adding more parental controls to Hulu soon. Why? There is a Freaknik documentary coming out and they don't want their kids to know how wild they got. Freaknik, a combo of the words freaky and picnic, was a notorious spring break event in Atlanta. 
It started in the 1980s and grew to become a massive, infamous street festival in the 1990s. Most importantly, it had a huge influence on hip-hop culture. T-Pain, Killer Mike, Beyonce, Outkast, Jay-Z, Missy Elliott, Jermaine Dupri, Janet Jackson, Lil Wayne and many more have all name-dropped Freaknik. Freaknik was celebratory, raunchy and more than a little risky and parents are sweating over seeing this long-lost footage. So if you really want to scare them, ask them when they're planning a family screening of Freaknik, the wildest party never told. More AI crackdowns. Two weeks ago, my co-host Otto Kent spoke to journalist Emily Friedlander about the impact of artificial intelligence on artists. Since then, a new AI-generated song by Drake and The Weeknd has surfaced. There's also an AI cover version of WAP making the rounds on social media using Drake and Kanye's voices. Of course, none of these artists ever touched a mic in that process. So this all feels a little bit worrying. And we're not the only ones concerned. Universal Music Group has told streaming services to stop letting AI systems train on UMG-controlled songs and other copyrighted content without artist or label consent. It's the latest move in an ongoing chess game where it can be hard to remember every move. So listen back to our interview with Emily for an update on the current AI landscape and the implications for artists and listeners. Can we fix the mix? Can you guess the pop song from 2022 that credited the most women and non-binary people? Have a think and I'll let you know in a bit. Last week, a report was released called Fix the Mix, and it specifically tracked gender representation in music and much more. The report is 59 pages of statistics. We'll highlight a couple of key ones. In the top 50 stream tracks of 2022, the ratio of men to women and non-binary tech credits was 19 to 1. It was great to see that electronic music stood out for its relatively high representation of women and non-binary people in producer roles. On the other hand, looking at rap songs, none of the top 50 tracks credited a woman or a non-binary person as a producer. So the bottom line is, there's still a long way to go. Fix the Mix offers some potential solutions, for example, accurately crediting all technical contributors, diversifying hiring practices outside of assistant roles, and amplifying representation to encourage active participation. Here's hoping that this glass ceiling gets kicked down as quickly as we can. Oh, and did you guess that pop song I mentioned earlier? The correct answer is Beyonce's Break My Soul. I cannot let you go just yet. This is the part of our podcast where some of our favorite artists, DJs and music experts share their favorite tracks, artists, food, books, you name it. As a Brit, you know, we love talking about the weather. And I don't know what's been going on with the weather here in Berlin. We've had fog, rain, thunderstorms, drizzle, you name it. So cherry blossoms and sunshine, we need you. If you're as desperate for less cloudy skies as we are, this recommendation is for you. We asked Brazilian DJ and producer Moshak for his absolute springtime classic. Um, the most spring record of all time for me is It's Changed by Dr. Loni Smith, George Benson, and Ron Carter. Oh, and Joey Lovano, because it just sounds like the flowers coming out. It's the most spring track ever. And it's called It's Changed. Like the season's changed. Look at the flowers, they've come out. Look. Yes, it is all about manifestation, Moshak. Maybe if enough of us believe it, those sun rays will break through eventually. Of course, you can find the link to It's Changed in the show notes. 
And while you're there, check out last week's episode if you haven't gotten around to listening to it. We sat down with Moshak for an extensive talk about his fashion sense, musical influences, and his love of Comic Sans. Yes, the internet's most controversial font. Oh, and just one more thing. Electronic Beats is currently posted up at Salone del Mobile in Milan. Every night, we turn IKEA's exhibition space into a pop-up club. You can still catch us tonight when Ultimo Tango Sound System are taking over the decks. If you're in Milan or close by, check out the show notes for details. That's all for the week this week. Thank you so much for looking in. I'll be back here next Thursday. Take care and enjoy the rest of the week. The Week is a production by Telecom Electronic Beats and ACB Stories. <laughs>